Secretary of Defense is the latest in a long line of former Trump hangers-on to criticize the president's handling of protests. K-pop stands are taking down racist hashtags on Twitter, and it's music to my ears. And we've got New York Times writer Jamel Bowie with us to talk about the nationwide protests and why Trump's law and order re-election pitch is not a slam dunk winner. The date, June 4th, 2020. The time, News O'Clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to News O'Clock. So before we dive into everything, I just really want to note that noted YouTube chuckle man Jake Paul has been charged for having been associated with looting out in California. And it just, of all the people in the world to have this happen to, it couldn't have happened to a better one. I'm just so pleased by this. I mean, of course it happened. And I'm glad that there were legal repercussions to this for... A white person who didn't not need to be out there looting. Right. I know it's alleged right now. It's alleged. We saw the videos of him being out by a mall as fire was sh- uh, being shot off. We saw him out there by the mall as was being looted. But it's all charges right now. So Jake Paul's lawyer, if you're listening to this, we said alleged mul- was dr- drizzling the alleged over there. <laughs> okay. Time for the TLDR, the most important headlines for the day, brought to the top of your feed. Here are three things you need to know today. One, protests continued Wednesday evening as the president's actions were criticized from new and unexpected angles. The streets were mostly calm again on Wednesday as demonstrators willfully defied curfews in major cities. An exception was in New York City, where the police violently broke up a peaceful march. This calm is in spite of the president's insistence that the streets are chaotic madhouses right now. In fact, Trump's response to the protest is drawing rebukes from several unexpected corners. That includes evangelical leader Pat Robertson, who called out Trump on his show Tuesday night. He said, I'm ready to send in military troops if the nation's governors don't act to quell the violence that has rocked American City. Matter of fact, he spoke of them as being jerks. You just don't. Do that, Mr. President. It isn't cool. Meanwhile, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, who last year said it would be inappropriate for him to criticize a sitting president, finally lit into his former boss. In an interview with The Atlantic, Mattis said, quote, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. Mattis also said that he's with the protesters and that they're rightly demanding equal justice under the law. Trump, of course, tweeted his displeasure with Mattis, saying, quote, I gave him a new life, things to do, and battles to win, but he seldom, quote, brought home the bacon. Two, the Department of Justice is now deploying unidentifiable armed security forces in D.C., and most of them are refusing to share who they are when asked. Many, many people are deployed on the ground in D.C. right now, including the National Guard, FBI, U.S. Marshals, and others. But journalists and protesters keep spotting clusters of armed men in all black with no identifying insignias and no nameplates. When asked who they're with, most of them have either responded that they're with DOJ or refused to say at all. Several outlets, including the HuffPost and Washington Post, reported that at least some of the people spotted were with the Bureau of Prisons. The BOP has dispatched special operations response teams that specialize in responding to riots behind bars. But without names or identifiers, it makes it both hard to complain if one of these people hurts a protester and makes it more likely that a protester decides not to follow an order from someone who looks like a random person. And three. George Floyd's memorial service was held in Minneapolis today with powerful speeches commemorating his life and voicing the struggles of Black America. 
the Reverend Al Sharpton gave the eulogy, where he explained why he felt so moved by Floyd's killing. George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks. Because ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. Sharpton also announced a massive rally that will be held on August 28th in Washington, D.C. It will be the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. The vigil comes just a day after Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison upgraded the charges against Derek Chauvin, the former officer who killed George Floyd, who is now accused of second-degree murder. He also announced charges of aiding and abetting murder against the three other officers involved in Floyd's arrest. Since Floyd's death, there have been several other cases of the police causing people's death or severe injuries. That includes Justin Howell, a 20-year-old student at Texas State University, whose family says he suffered brain damage from a beanbag round to the head during protests. It also includes Sean Monterosa, a man shot and killed outside of Los Angeles after police mistook a hammer in his pocket for a gun. The killings by police officers keep on happening. Yes, they do. Um, and during this time, it's... Uh... It's truly awful. Um, I just wanted to revisit um, the quote from Mattis, where it was just like, it's a little too late. I mean, okay, good someone is, other people are coming up and saying things against Trump, but I mean, he literally calls out Trump for dividing instead of uniting. And I'm like, well, he's been doing that for a while. (laughs) Yes, he has. Uh, Mattis, though, I will also say uh, in the last couple of days, every single current living former president also said, hey, don't do this. This is bad. So Mattis is in pretty good company right now. Finally. Finally. All right. It's time for today's good news, bad news. Some good news for you. The cast of Brooklyn Nine-Nine has donated more than $100,000 to bail arrested protesters out of jail. Actor Stephanie Beatrice, who plays Rosa Diaz on the show, got the ball rolling earlier this week when she announced a donation of $11,000 to the Community Justice Exchange. She echoed a call from the Tick star Griffin Newman, tweeting, quote, I'm an actor who plays a detective on TV. If you currently play a cop, If you make tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in residuals from playing a cop, I'll let you do the math. And then Brooklyn Nine-Nine showrunner Dan Gore announced on Tuesday that he and the rest of the cast would be opening their wallets with a statement saying that they, quote, condemn the murder of George Floyd and support the many people who are protesting police brutality nationally. Together, the cast donated $100,000 to the National Bail Fund Network. Uh, best show about cops on TV right now? I think yes. I think actually yes. Oh, what... 100%. And it's absolutely wild. It's like, yes, I always knew that there's a lot of cop shows out there, but I think I saw a tweet that was like, there's over 50. And I'm like, oh my God, that's insane. But anyways, it's just like, it is wild. And not all of them are presented the way they are in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And it's just nice to see Brooklyn Nine-Nine actors and the creator coming forward and donating this money. Right, because I remember a few seasons back, they had an episode where they had one of their their black sergeant who was, you know, stopped for being a black man in front of his house. And they dealt with that really well. So I'm not surprised to see that they actually are taking the time to think about this right now and good on them. They really are really good at handling tough situations that are real and current. Um, Amy Santiago's character um, has this scene where she's talking to her husband, Jake, about the time she's been sexually harassed. And it's this very moving 
tear-inducing episode that's just like you don't see a lot on sitcoms. Mm. And now moving on to bad news, this time for Megan McCain, who got called out by her neighbor for calling her neighborhood a war zone. So on Tuesday, McCain, one of the co-hosts of The View, tweeted that her Manhattan neighborhood is, quote, eviscerated and looks like a war zone, referring, of course, to the NYC protests. But then her neighbor, Kristen Bartlett, who just happens to be the co-head writer of Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, responded, Megan, we live in the same building and I just walked outside. It's fine. Turns out McCain wasn't even in the city. Like, she literally wasn't in the city. She later acknowledged that she based her tweet on images of Midtown that she saw online. McCain also said that she supports peaceful protests and that, quote, it's important to have your voices heard. I hope everyone stays safe and healthy. Oh, Megan. Oh, Megs. Oh, dear. I I, I have to note, I, I saw in page six... Page Six claimed that a source said that she left New York City for Virginia because she wanted to be able to have a gun around. Uh, McCain's people clearly denied that, but I it woof. I know, and McCain did tweet out. She was just like, "There is going to be um, a story coming out saying where I, my family is actually located and stuff like that." But I was just, I was already cackling at that first tweet when Kristen Bartlett called her out and was like, "It's fine." And then I completely lost it when I found out Megan McCain wasn't even there. Uh, oh, Megs. Oh, Megan. <laughs> That's all I can say to this right now. I, I'm sure she's used to it being dunked on like this from her years on The View, but does one ever really get used to it? This is my question. <laughs> After the break, we've got Jamel Bowie of the New York Times. We'll be right back. At SheFit, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. your new year's resolution to be more productive with the before breakfast podcast in each bite-sized daily episode time management and productivity expert laura vanderkam teaches you how to make the most of your time both at work and at home these are the practical suggestions you need to get more done with your day just as lifting weights keeps our bodies strong as we age learning new skills is the mental equivalent of pumping iron listen to before breakfast wherever you get your podcasts 
Welcome back. The protests against police brutality, which started so soon after 100,000 people had died of the coronavirus, have people looking for historical comparison. A lot of people are landing on 1968. That's the year when Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy were killed and riots broke out ahead of the DNC convention. The people making that comparison include Trump, who is trying to make the case that, like Richard Nixon, he can restore law and order. We're joined by New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie, who in his latest piece says, uh, not so fast on that analogy. Uh, Jamel, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So first, uh, how did that 1968 comparison gain traction and uh, why is it a swing and a miss in your eyes? I think the 1968 comparison gained traction um, for the pretty simple reason that a huge part of the political leadership class was alive in 1968 and have memories of uh, the civil unrest in that year. And because Donald Trump is a Republican and sort of has positioned himself as kind of a law and order Republican, minds immediately jump to thinking that this situation must be analogous to that one. But the the facts on the ground in 1968 are just so much uh, more different than they are now that I don't think the comparison really holds at all. First of all, I mean, this is actually quite big. Richard Nixon was not the incumbent. He was the challenger to Lyndon Johnson, and Donald Trump is the incumbent. But the fact that Trump is the incumbent and the unrest is happening under his watch, despite having run on order, means that attempting to run a law and order campaign now is sort of an explicit rebuke to his own tenure as president. It's, 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 a, it's an own goal. So if 1968 isn't the right comparison, is there any sort of historical analogy we should be going for? Or is all this just so unprecedented that we should stop trying to find a comparison? I'm inclined to say that we should stop trying to find a comparison. Now, there are certainly things about this moment for which we can look to past examples to try to understand the processes beneath them. So the uh, protests and civil unrest across the country obviously are flowing out of the same Um, factors, racial inequality, police brutality that have driven these kinds of events throughout 20th century American history, right? Like 1968, 1967, um, 1960. uh, There's a lot of these things happening. But there are limits to all of these comparisons because, A, we are in this unique uh, situation where everything, all of these events are happening at once. Um, B, and this I think is often underplayed, Americans today are not the same people as Americans 50 years ago, right? And so just in the immediate example of the protests, part of the reason you see a lot of elected officials and people in civil society come out in favor of the protest despite, you know, uh, rioting in some cases, despite property damage in some cases, despite actual violence in some cases, is that support for the basic aim of the protesters, kind of police accountability, um, even just a sense that the police are abusing their power is fairly widespread throughout the public in a way that just was not true 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And so when you begin to really kind of stack up the ways in which this moment is different, it's hard to look to analogies. I think it's much more useful to just try to take these events uh, on their own terms. So, The protests over the last week have only grown as the president has called for more force to be used against the demonstrators. So 
I know you just said that you don't want to try and prognosticate, basically, but so where do you see all this going another week or two weeks' time? I, I feel like that's like as far out as we could possibly predict this right now. It's um, it's difficult to say. You know, so was it Monday or Tuesday when um, the White House uh, ordered the use of gas? Yeah, that was um, Monday. Clear, that was Monday. Uh, I, I have no idea how time works anymore, so it could have been anywhere in the past 72 hours. Um, but the white house ordered, you know, gas to be used to clear Lafayette square outside the white house. Um, so that was sort of in that moment, you kind of had this question, how far would the white house go, right? How far president Trump go in trying to suppress protest? Um, what's the, what's the line from uh, bombs over Baghdad? Um, don't pull the thing out unless you plan the bang. Right. And that, and what happened on Monday was, the administration pulled the thing out and wasn't really prepared to go as far as it needed to, if it was going to really try to suppress protests. And so I think what that means is that um, the white house has shown it's sort of essential weakness that it's not prepared to act in that way, that it doesn't have the political support to act in that way, that it is as much as anyone else at the mercy of events. And I, and I don't think it's an accident that over the past 48 hours, we have seen figures like James Mattis, like the former President Bush, speak essentially in support of the protesters and against that action on Monday. Um, so looking forward two weeks from now, three weeks from now, I don't know. Like, if the question is, how did the protests resolve themselves? I have no idea how that works out. I think, I don't think anyone really knows. But I think the one thing we can say is that whatever political um, capital, to use a cliche, the White House had, um, is now completely squandered. So these protests against police brutality, they've been compared a bunch to protests we saw earlier this year against coronavirus lockdowns. Some people on Twitter and on Fox News have tried to say that the protesters right now are hypocrites since they're not social distancing in the middle of a pandemic. What do you say to that? I think the interesting thing, um, the interesting thing here is that the nucleus of the protests now sort of working class African-Americans were exactly the people who were most exposed to illness and death from coronavirus. And from my perspective, the, the, the willingness to protest with that, given those conditions, is not a sign of hypocrisy as much as it's a sign of the direness of the conditions themselves. You know, I think the George Floyd killing was so egregious for a lot of people that it kind of sparked um, a decision to say things are dangerous with the pandemic, but it's worth protesting this. I also think that the anti-lockdown protests, what they were, were people protesting to demand others to go back to work so they can consume. And the current protests are protests to, for the government to protect one's life and liberty against abuse. And that is just simply a more legitimate reason to protest. <laughs> like it just is. Um, and given that, uh, does it fly in the face of prohibitions against gathering in crowds? Yes, it does. Um, I think it's worth saying that, uh, had police responded to protest by not tear gassing using pepper spray, people might be able to maintain social distancing a little better in the crowds. But I think the fact that people are willing to protest knowing that crowds are not great should really be seen as an indication of the seriousness of the underlying conditions, less than as some judgment on who is being hypocrite and who's not. Right. Okay, uh, Jamel, 
we have to talk about that Tom Cotton op-ed. For anyone who might have missed this, yesterday, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas wrote a piece in the Times that called for the military to go in and put down the protest, saying, quote, one thing above all else will restore order to our streets, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. The president retweeted it favorably, but it caused an outpouring of anger from people both inside and outside of the Times. So, Jamel, what was your reaction when you first read the piece? And did you have any idea that it was coming? Um, so I, you know, I, I read it when everyone else did. So I, I wasn't really, didn't, wasn't really privy to its publication. My, so my reaction when I read the piece was he is making an argument that does cross a certain kind of line. It's his argument has been rendered as, oh, he just wants the National Guard to assist police or that he wants the military to, you know, bolster police. But that's not actually what his argument is. His argument is that the president of the United States should use the Insurrection Act to send troops to states over the wishes of local and statewide elected officials to use, I think the quote is, overwhelming force against um, rioters, broadly defined. At no point does Cotton really attempt to seriously distinguish between people committing property damage, people committing violence, and protesters who are overwhelmingly peaceful. And so when you when you kind of like actually look at the argument, it's a call for military occupation. And although Cotton tries to uh, find precedence, he he uh, says, "Well, look, um, Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne and 57 to integrate public schools." Um, the, <laughs> the the problem with that analogy is that in those cases in the 50s and the 60s the federal government was acting against states who were rejecting um, a Supreme Court ruling, um, rejecting federal law, and essentially acting in open rebellion of the government of the United States. And that's not happening here. So he's calling for something unprecedented. The implication of what he's calling for is just the use of military force against American citizens. And from my perspective, that is sort of, that's kind of beyond the pale of argumentation that we can argue and debate many, many things, many things that I find very objectionable, but I think are completely legitimate things to put out there in the public sphere for debate. But I'm not sure that we should be debating whether or not the government can show up with tanks and and, and troops and begin to shut down um, people exercising their First Amendment rights, which is what Cotton was calling for. Well, Jamel, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, we have time for one more thing. We got to talk about the force of the K-pop stan community again. Yes, yes, we do. And I, I, I am, oh, now I'm picturing the havoc they could wreak on this show. So again, we love you <laughs> so much, K-pop fans. Okay, but what have they done this time? Well, so they're really, I think this is like really smart, but they're basically like just taking over like white lives matter and MAGA hashtags so that all of those hashtags are flooded with like positive tweets, pictures, videos that go against what all those hashtags stand for. That's beautiful. And the only thing that can make that better is the confusion on people's faces as they unironically click into these hashtags. You know, hopefully they're learning something. That'd be great. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I think one of the best parts of this is that actually like, so some people were smart enough to be like, okay, now we need to move away from white lives matter because these K-pop fans have taken over. So they switch it to hashtag white life matter. But the K-pop fans were like, uh, no, we see what you're doing. And we're just going <laughs> to flood those as well. <laughs> They're everywhere. You cannot trick them this easily. <laughs> um, and they even took over the hashtag for Whiteout Wednesday, which I did not know was a thing until like today. I mean, come on. But I think my favorite tweet that I've seen was from a BTS fan Twitter user at Brookie's Cookie. Great handle. Great handle. Who posted this video of one of the band's stars with a caption, Namjoon couldn't have said it better. Hashtag White Lives Matter. No matter who you are, where you from, your skin color, your gender identity, just speak yourself. Namjoon is a real one, a real ally. And you know what? I want to see him march now. Come on, Namjoon. Let's get out there on the streets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it for today. Join us tomorrow when we're joined by Morgan Jerkins, who will be joining us to talk about the specific ways that Black women have been affected by police brutality. And remember, Tom Cotton buys himself a birthday cake from the grocery store almost every day, and he has terrible opinions. You deserve a birthday cake, too. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. 